It is certainly good to be back. We appreciate everyone being with us tonight, especially if you're visiting. And Nicole and I have a couple of young ladies with us tonight. We appreciate them coming and visiting with us. And if you hadn't gotten to meet Carly and Sarah, you want to make sure you do that. They are two of the sweetest, nicest young ladies that you'll hope to meet. And uh, we're expert on super sweet, nice young ladies. So uh, you'll want to you want to say hello to them. If you would, be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. I want us to notice a statement Jesus made, beginning with verse 37, and we'll notice 37 through 39. John 7, beginning with 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. The context of our passage is uh, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And we go back to verse 2 of that chapter, and it talks about the Jews participating in that Feast of Tabernacles. And that was a memorial feast. It was a memorial feast to bring to remembrance for the Jewish people when it came to this period of time, this time of year, it would have been October on our calendar, to bring to their remembrance how God had cared for them and took care of them as they wandered through the wilderness after having been released and rescued from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. Now what the Jews would do, they would build small tabernacles or tents and often they would build those on their porch or on top of their home and they would place all manner of different fruits and decorate this small tent And they would, as it were, dwell in those tents for seven days. And uh, sometimes they would even eat in uh, these little tents, and they might even sleep in them. But the point of the tent was for it to be a memorial. They would be reminded of God's care, how He took care of them as they roamed through the wilderness. Now, each of the seven days... As this feast was going on, the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam. He would take a golden uh, cup and he would dip water out of it and he would go to the altar. And he would pour this water out upon the altar uh, where the sacrifice had been arranged. And they would do this for seven days. And as he poured this water out upon the altar, they would be singing songs unto God and they would be shouting with joy for seven days. On the eighth day, the last day, when the uh, uh, priest would come and still make a sacrifice, but there was no shouting for joy. There was no singing of psalms. Because this was known as a solemn day of repentance. And there was something else missing. There was no water. They would not go to the pool of Siloam and dip out water and take to the altar and pour it upon the altar. And it was at this backdrop when Christ rose up and He explained and exclaimed, 
that he was the fountain of living waters. And when he spoke those words, thousands of people would have been gathered together and would have heard him make that statement. And they would certainly have understood exactly what he meant. So it is with that in mind that I want us to focus for a few moments on the fountain of living water. And that's the title of the sermon tonight. As Jesus proclaimed Himself the source of life, and notice He didn't say He was the water, He was the outlet for the water. It was to Him one would go to gain this water of life. I want us to understand some very important things that He taught. And the first thing that He taught was He wanted people to recognize Him for what He was. That's our first point. That's why he stood up and proclaimed, I am the fountain of living water. It is from him that the water of life comes. And by his example, Jesus taught the world to recognize him as the source of knowledge. I want us to notice what Paul said in Philippians 3, beginning with verse 14. He told those in Philippi, saying, I press toward the mark for the uh, prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect or complete, be thus minded, and if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So... He wanted us to recognize Him as the source. Notice what Paul said. He said, brethren, follow us as we follow after Christ. They were following Christ, and if we're following the example of faithful brethren, we can follow their example. Notice what he said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Talking to the Corinthians, he said, Be ye followers of me, even also as I am of Christ. Paul never took the credit. He always gave credit to the Lord, but he said, You can follow my example as I follow Christ's example. And it was Peter who made this statement, 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. Now fortunately for us, God has preserved for us exactly how we are called. Paul, in speaking to those in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, or beginning with 13, he said, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. He said, Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chose you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, wherein He called you by our gospel, by the gospel they taught to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. 
Now he said the inspired word of God, the letters that he wrote, the sermons that he delivered were something that ought to become a habit. You follow those like it was a tradition because it is a tradition handed down by God. And Paul addressed a, 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 a big problem in Galatia. They had allowed some people to come into their congregation and begin to work among them and they were teaching something other than what God had commanded. Now remember what Paul said. You follow after me as I follow after Christ. Peter said Jesus is our example. So if Peter was following Christ's example to the T, then we could follow Peter's example. But notice what was going on in Galatia. He told them, Galatians chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, he said, I marvel, he was astonished, that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now notice this, this is very important. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I uh, now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if, it, for if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Our jobs as followers of Christ is to serve Him. It is to please Christ, not other people. There are innumerable religions throughout the world that have taught another gospel. Let's take, for instance, the religion of Islam. The religion of Islam claims to have had a prophet by the name of Muhammad. Do you know what they teach about our Lord? They teach that He was a great man but that he was just a prophet. Now, he was not the last and the greatest prophet. He was just simply a prophet. And then later came Muhammad. Where is that in the Bible? It doesn't exist in the Bible, does it? Now, how do I know I can trust the Bible as opposed to the Quran? That's an important question, isn't it? We need to be able to ask that question. We ought to ask that question. God doesn't expect us just to swallow something hook, line, and sinker. He wants us to investigate, right? Remember, he said he wanted to be recognized as the source of knowledge. He said, I am the fountain of living water. People need to recognize that. When we pick up the Quran and we begin to flip through the pages, uh, and I don't have my Quran with me up here. Maybe I should have brought it. There are several instances in the Quran that claims to be an inspired document that absolutely states things that are false. For instance, the beginning of life. Muhammad recorded in the Quran that life begins as a clot of blood who become, that becomes a piece of flesh that then becomes a bone and then is covered with flesh. Now, when Muhammad wrote the Quran... You could say something like that and get away with it because no one could see the process by which a human was formed in the womb of his or her mother. But now we know absolutely that's not the case. The egg is fertilized by a sperm. It begins to divide in uh, this process of cells becoming 
two, becoming four, becoming eight. And over the course of time, you begin to see this human child form in its mother's womb. It didn't begin as a clot of blood, did it? So, that's just one example of why we cannot trust the Quran. So, if he says that, if Muhammad says he's the latest, greatest prophet, that's a different gospel. And Paul said, if someone tells you that, whether it's us or whether it's an angel from heaven, he will be accursed. So, Jesus wanted them to recognize that he was the source of information. And he also wanted them to recognize that he was the source of salvation. Okay? Remember, Paul said this, Jesus chose us for salvation from the beginning, but we must understand exactly what he meant by that. God made a choice. From the beginning, who would be saved? Now, we're not talking about an arbitrary individual, this person will be saved, this person will be lost. Notice what Paul said. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Before the foundation of the world, in eternity, God chose those who are in Christ, or who would be in Christ, to be saved. That's how that election comes about, isn't it? Now, uh, notice again, what did God choose before the foundation of the world? And how did He carry out that plan? Let's go a little further over in the Ephesian letter to chapter 3, beginning with verse 9. Paul said, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Now, what's the mystery? The mystery is the gospel. It was a mystery, but he is making known the fellowship of the mystery, right? What happens to a mystery when you've been given the answer? When you're reading a book and it's a mystery, what happens when you get to the end of the book? It's not a mystery anymore, right? You, you read that book the second time, or you watch that movie the second time, do you know what's going to happen? Absolutely, every single time. So the mystery has been revealed, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. Okay, from the foundation of the world, God had this mystery that He didn't share during the patriarchal time. Noah didn't know exactly about the mystery. Job didn't know exactly about the mystery, but Job said, I know one day I'll have a mediator. So it was mysterious. Peter talked about the angels in eternity looking into that uh, mystery that God had, not even understanding it themselves. The prophets of the Old Testament prophesied about things they didn't completely understand. Again, Job said, I know there's going to come a, a, a day when I have a mediator. But anyway, it was hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church. This was written in the middle 60s A.D. He said it was a mystery in eternity, but now it's to be made known to who? The church. That's where it's supposed to be made known. By the church, the manifold wisdom of God, according 
to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. So this was a mystery in eternity. Time began to unfold through the patriarchal period, through the law of Moses' time, into the Christian dispensation. And at the time Paul wrote this letter, it was made known through the church that Christ would save those who were in Him. That was the eternal purpose of God. God's eternal purpose, He said, was purposed in Christ Jesus. He brought it to fruition. Now, what was His mission when He came to earth? Luke recorded for us, Luke 19.10, that He came to seek and to save the lost. But how did He do it? How did He seek and save the lost? Let's go over to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Notice what the Lord told Peter. Now let's look at the background here. Let's look at the context. They're, they're going into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. They're, the Lord is talking with the, the apostles and He asked them a question. Who do people say I am? And the reply was, well some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Isaiah. Come back from the grave. Some people think you're a great prophet. And then He asked them, He says, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter, standing up, saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know what Jesus said? He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now let's go to verse 18. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon what rock? The rock of the confession that He is the very Son of God. And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, death, shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we read about, and as it were through the eye of faith, watch Peter and the other apostles use those keys to unlock the kingdom of heaven in Acts chapter 2. Now this terminology, the kingdom of heaven, is used in two senses in the Bible. You have the kingdom of heaven standing in meaning the church in which those people who are saved shall be. And then you have the kingdom of heaven after Christ returns, He gathers up the faithful and takes them to the eternal abode. Now how do we know that? Listen, we need to read for it and look at it ourselves, don't we? We turn over to Revelation chapter 1. We look at verse 9. And Paul, or excuse me, John the Apostle is recording this revelation. And do you know what he tells the people, the seven churches of Asia? He, he tells them a few things that we know are a fact. He said, I'm John. Okay, we know that's a fact. He said, I'm in prison. I'm in trials and tribulations. He said, I'm your brother. And I'm in the kingdom. He was still alive. He was on this earth. He was a member of the Lord's church. He had dedicated his life and he was one of those twelve who stood up in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, took the keys that Jesus had given them and unlocked the door to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And we remember what happened. Peter's part of the sermon is recorded for us. He began to explain to them, you murdered the very Son of God. Some of you in this very audience by wicked hands took the life of the very Son of God. After having preached that sermon, we get over to verse 37. 
And they said unto them, the people listening, speaking to the apostles, and they said unto them, men and brethren, what shall we do? About what? They killed the Son of God. They, they were outside a covenant relationship with God. The keys to the kingdom, the door had been unlocked. The Jewish religion is now gone. Can't get to heaven as a Jew now. You have to get to heaven as a Christian because Christ's church was established. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You get down to verse 40 or 41. And he says, And with many other words did he exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And when we look at the plan of salvation put forth in the Bible, we know we have to hear the word, Romans ten seventeen, right? You have to listen. You have to have faith. It is the word, the seed, right? Matthew chapter 8. The seed is planted in the heart and it can produce or it may not, depending on the soil. And it is the seed planted. It produces faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Repentance of past sins. I have to say, look, I want to change my life. I don't want to live in opposition to God anymore. I want to be one of God's people. I want to be one of the Lord's people. I want to be a member of Christ's church. That church established in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Now, brethren, that's been almost 2,000 years ago. But we can be a member of that church. And so Peter explained to them, and those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that's what God expects. Jesus wanted the world to recognize him as the source of knowledge and recognize him as the source of salvation. But what do we need to do before that can happen? We can hear the the message of the Bible all day long, but what do we have to do to make that happen? We must receive the water of life. That's our second point. We have to receive the water of life. If we receive the water of life, we will receive salvation. Now, we have to understand what does it mean to receive something. I accept it. I take it. I put it to use in my life. So, not that I just recognize that that it is something that's true. I have to live that, right? So, I receive that. And we understand that is the primary benefit that Jesus brought to the world, eternal salvation, by the grace of God, through faith and obedience. Right? Hebrews chapter 11 explains that to us wonderfully. Now, we can be assured of salvation, but we must do our part. Again, Peter told those who received his letter, 2 Peter 1.10, that they needed to make their calling and election sure. What does that tell us? That means it might be unsure, right? You might lose it. You might not be able to maintain it. Now, we can maintain it, but we have to put forth our effort. Again, our calling and election. What did Paul say? How did he say we were called? By the gospel. We're called by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter wanted them to make sure that they maintained that calling and they maintained that election. What is an election? I choose, right? I choose. We go into the voting booth all the time. I choose this person for president. I choose this person for governor. Or I choose this person for whatever dog catcher of uh, Hamilton County, if we've got one, I don't know. But that's what an election is all about, right? We make a choice. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 47, Luke recorded, After those who gladly accepted the Word of God were baptized, and he went on to say this, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There are no saved people outside of Christ's church. All spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1 verse 3, are in Christ. The saved are in Christ. What's the body of Christ? The church, Colossians 1 18, isn't it? And only those baptized into His body are saved. Because that's how we get into the body, right? Romans 6, 3 and 4, we're baptized into His death. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Now remember who He was writing to. He wasn't writing to the general population. He wasn't writing to everyone in the world who had yet to obey the gospel. He was writing to the church in Galatia. Okay? And he told those Christians, for we're all the children of God by faith, for as many of us as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And so that's how we get into Christ. And so, if we're not in His body, we're not saved. We can't be in another body, can we? We can't be in a body uh, created by Rick Owens and get to heaven. Certainly not. Can I? Uh, could I form a church of my own? Absolutely. It happens every day, doesn't it? But that's not the church you need to be in to get to heaven. You've got to be in Christ's church. That church that He said, I will build my church. Now listen, that's very simple to us, isn't it? That's a singular, possessive pronoun. It's He's the owner, one person, my church. Possessive. No one else is. So I have to be in His church. Now, when we receive the water of life from the fountain of flowing water, we receive salvation and we receive satisfaction. What happens when we eat food and drink water in this life? Well, we're satisfied for a little while, right? And if you're like me, for very little. Okay? I have to go back. We have to go back to the trough, don't we? We have to go back get some more water, get some more something. We have to have some liquids in this life. We have to have food. We don't eat one time. You know, I uh, read in the news the other day or saw the thumbnail. Some woman somewhere claims she doesn't eat anymore. She doesn't eat anymore. She gets all her energy from breathing. You'll breathe about a week. you stop breathing. You're not eating, right? And if you're not drinking water, you go about three days and that's the end of it. Okay? And so we have to continually go back and, and get sustenance. Not so when we drink from the fountain of living water. We remember when, when Jesus spoke to that lady, the Samaritan at the well. You remember, He offered her water, living water. He said, you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. So we have to understand. That gives us something that we will not need someone else. All we need is the fountain of living water. Now, Jesus was making a difference here. Now, remember, this was the great day, the last day of this feast. They're not pouring out water anymore. So He's making a difference between the pool of Siloam, physical water, and Himself. And they would understand that. He is the uh, living water, and that's where we get our blessings. And again... We look in John 4, 14, and he talked to that Samaritan woman at the well. She didn't understand it. She missed it because she said, well, give me some of that water. And remember, she had walked a long way in the heat of the day. She didn't come in the morning hours. Recall, we, we spoke about her several 
weeks or months ago. I, I can't keep up with it. But she was an outcast, right? And so she came in the heat of the day when no one else was around so she couldn't be mistreated and abused. And it was hot. And she's carrying these huge uh, containers of water. She said, yeah, give me some of that water. Give me some of that water and I'll take it back and water the, the animals and I won't have to do this anymore. See, she didn't get it. But maybe she did later on. When we receive the water of life, we receive salvation, we receive satisfaction, and we receive strength. This water of life never abates, does it? It doesn't stop. It continually flows, and it never stops flowing. And it always refreshes the faithful Christian. Paul said that the power of God unto salvation was the gospel. And he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So if Jesus is giving the waters of life, that water that will give you life eternally, and Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what is the water of life? The gospel. It's the gospel message. That's where we gain our life, our eternal life. And uh, when one obeys the gospel... The inner man becomes refreshed every day. Have you ever noticed, and I know you have, you've read about the attendant blessings that come with salvation. We call them often the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and so on and so forth. And we work on that all at the same time. And those are the attendant blessings. And when we grow and mature as a Christian, we are refreshed. The inner man is refreshed. What happens to the, to the outer man, the physical body? Well, the older you get, the rougher it gets to get out of bed, doesn't it? Hurts a little bit more than normal. But what about the inner man? The inner man doesn't die. Now, that can be good or bad, right? If we go on to heaven, that's a wonderful thing. But the person who misses heaven and goes to eternal damnation, you still see that's eternal. That that spiritual body doesn't die. It continues on and on and on. One obeys the gospel again. The inner man is refreshed. Now, the sister passage to Acts 2.38 that we just noticed is Acts 3.19. In Acts 3.19, Paul said, or Peter said, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. See, we're refreshed continually, the faithful Christian. And it was Paul who said this. Notice Ephesians chapter 3. Let's go back to that book, beginning with verse 14. Paul said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with the might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye may be rooted and grounded in love. What is Paul saying here, he is holding up Christ. He's not holding up some person. He's not holding up himself, is he? When we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there was a little problem going on in Corinth. He had gotten news from the house of Chloe that there were some denominations happening, didn't he? Divisions. That's what a denomination is. It's a division. We denominate or divide our money, don't we? We have a one. I mostly have ones. But you can have a five or a ten or a twenty. You might even have a hundred if you're fortunate, right? And so that was going on at the house in Corinth. 
And so he, uh, he was told, some people are calling themselves after you, Paul. Some are calling themselves after Apollos and some after Cephas. Some are calling themselves after Christ. And that's when Paul said, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? No. We're not supposed to call ourselves after some person. We're to call ourselves after Christ, right? And so when we understand Christ is supposed to dwell in us, we need to make Him dwell in us, right? There are certain ways we do that. Christ dwells in us in the same way that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Paul told those in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he said, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Drinking alcohol is excess. Period. Right? But be filled with the Spirit. Now, brethren, that's a commandment. So how do we carry that out? Well, the sister passage in Colossians chapter 3, there are about 70-something verses, they're almost identical. Paul writing, uh, talking about the same message to two different congregations. He says, he told them, he said, Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. How am I filled with the Spirit? By the words of Christ. I let those words dwell in me. That's exactly what David was talking about in Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hidden in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. So as we look at this idea of Christ being the fountain of living water, he says first, you need to recognize the source of knowledge and the source of salvation. He begged the world to receive that uh, living water. And finally, he spoke of the reward that came after that. That's our third and final point. Well, one reward that we want to talk about that we're very interested in is redemption, right? Everyone wants to be redeemed. That means to be bought back. We allowed sin to come into the world, and we want to be bought back. We want to be able to stand justified in in the sight of God, and that's what the book of Romans is about. How do I stand justified in the sight of God? What do I need to do to take care of these sins in my life? Well, now, remember, that's what they asked on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 10. Peter told them the plan of salvation, and then by doing that, they become justified. Jesus told a parable about a rich man who went into a far country. And prior to going, he left some of his possessions with some servants. To one servant, he gave five talents. To another servant, he gave two talents. And to one servant, he gave one talent. We see that in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Well, upon his return, he gathered his servants together and he performed an audit. And he wanted to know, what would you do with these talents that I blessed you with? Well, the five-talent man, he had produced five more talents. The two-talent man had produced two more talents. And so their reward was redemption. Notice what he said. He told them, Matthew 25, verse 21 and verse 23. He said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Now remember, what was the purpose of the parable? He was describing the kingdom of heaven. And those two men, in this sense, he's talking about the eternal abode. Those two men were invited into the eternal abode because they did what they should have. Now, there wasn't just redemption though. There was also destruction. One talent man, he didn't do anything with his talent. He was lazy. 
he was a liar. He didn't prepare for the master's return. And he simply buried his talent. So when the audit was performed, the master told the lazy servant this. Notice beginning with verse 26 of Matthew 25. He said, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. He could have at least made some interest on his money. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verses 26 through 30. Now, I want us to notice what the master was doing. He was taking the accusation of the lazy, slothful, lying servant and used it against him. The master was not a hard man. The master did not reap where he had not sown. He did not gather where he had not strawed. He was a upstanding man. In fact, the master proved his generosity by allowing the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant to enter into the eternal abode and bless them far more than what they could have ever done on their own. But because of his sinfulness and laziness, the master punished the lazy servant with destruction. I think that's exactly why the writer of Hebrews made this statement found in Hebrews 10 verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There are no contradictions in the Bible. We read John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. Christ says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. right? And so how do we square that up with it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God? Let's notice what happened in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. Two brothers, Cain and Abel, they offered a sacrifice. Abel offered the firstlings of his flock. Cain offered the fruit of the ground that he had grown. Abel was accepted. Cain was rejected. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, because uh, of Abel's by faith, God accepted Abel's sacrifice. And so, when Cain was rejected, he became wroth. He became angry. He became upset. And so God asked, He said, Why are you wroth? And then He made this statement in verse 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when we have not prepared ourselves to meet the living God. But if we prepare ourselves, it's nothing but joy and comfort. I think we all ought to ask ourselves, Where do I stand in regard to my salvation? Where am I in a relationship with God? Do I recognize the proper source of salvation? Am I determining where I need to go? Where I need to look to gain the truth from God? Do I willingly receive that salvation? Do I accept it 
in the way that Jesus has prescribed for me to accept it. I think throughout the world, I think a vast majority of people believe in some kind of a higher power. Even those who claim to be Christians or to at least believe in God and Christ, I think if we were to ask them, they want to be saved. But they want to be saved the way they want to be saved, not according to what God has said. That's why he made that statement, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He said, we have two choices in essence, right? You have the the narrow gate and the straight way. You have the broad way and the wide path. Very few people go into the narrow gate. A whole lot of people go into the broad gate. Very few people are going to be saved. Why? Because they choose not to be saved. Or at least they choose not to be saved the way God has told them to be saved. And so in essence, that's choosing not to be saved. Am I waiting a reward of redemption? Or am I fearful? Do I understand that maybe I'm not in the position I need to be? Is there destruction waiting on me? I think we all need to ask that question. That's something that's very important in this life. We can't take someone's word for it. We need to dig it out. Look at it ourselves, right? We need to see what God wants us to do. And we need to fully understand that. And He has preserved for us His words through His providence. We can prove the Bible is is the Word of God. We can prove the Bible is inspired. It has internal and external proofs. And it's easy to dig those out. And if we can prove that the Bible is from God, we need to listen to the Bible. We need to do what He says. If you've never obeyed the gospel through faith and repentance, confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, immersion in water so our sins can be washed away, adding us to the Lord's church and living faithfully, do that. If you've done it yet you've become unfaithful, John talks about 1 John, how we need to remedy that. We confess our faults one to another. We ask God to forgive us and He will do that. And again, we're walking in the light. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation at this time, Do that as we stand and as we sing.